Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 12. As we continue through this book of 2 Corinthians, it's been a great journey. I love this book. We saw the last time we were together, Paul sharing about this vision of going to heaven that he had. And, and, and then he, as he talked about his thorn in the flesh, and whatever that was, we don't know what it was. It was some kind of a problem that he had, probably a medical problem perhaps with his eyes. Um, but what Paul learned from going through a difficulty like that is something that we can all learn, that ultimately sometimes God has purposes in us going through these sorts of conditions and these problems because it's when he allows us to be weak that his strength is actually perfected. And as I've said before, it's not pleasant to go through something like that, and, and nor is it incredibly enlightening at the time that you're going through it. I think, you know, we try to glamorize pain sometimes and act like, oh, it's the best thing. And then when you go through pain, you're going, this is nothing good about this at all. Um, Paul could relate to that, but he heard the voice of the Lord saying to him, my grace is sufficient for you, because when you're weak, then I'm strong. My strength is perfected in your weakness. And so often we don't see it while we're in the middle of the trial, but later on we're going to look back and recognize all that God was doing. You know, when you go in for surgery, hopefully most of the time you're not awake, it's better just to get knocked out. And I mean, I don't, I've never done this for dental work, but I, but I really think there's something to it. I suppose going under completely is dangerous and everything, but, but really some of the greatest surgeries that have ever been done happened when the person wasn't aware of it. And so with the Lord, when he's working on us, we don't always see him working. And I, you know, you go through things in your life and you feel like, what in the world is happening? And, and sometimes we feel like we're lousy Christians because while we're in the middle of the trial, we're not gaining this great awareness and sensitivity to God. But the truth is, even though we don't recognize it while it's happening, like a patient on an operating table, don't worry, you're not the doctor. They're not asking for your advice. They don't need you to tell, you when, tell them when it hurts. The doctor knows what he's doing, and God knows what he's doing. We only learn generally later what he was doing in our lives and how he was bringing that pain and turning it into something good. But we trust him because we know that when he does his best work, it's when we feel weak. I don't like to feel weak. I don't like to be under the weather. I don't like to feel less than at my peak. And yet, I know it's true because the Scripture says it, and I've experienced it oftentimes, that, wow, sometimes I do my best work when I can't do much, and God is able to work through me. And I, and I claim that often when I go through times of difficulty or when I go through times of illness or something like that, that, well, God, I don't know how I'm going to do, but I know that you are strong. And if 
your strength is perfected in my weakness, then God, you have a great setup right now because I'm feeling pretty weak. And, and just loving to see God's strength happen in that way. And so Paul says in verse 10, I take pleasure in infirmities, reproaches, needs, persecutions, distresses, for Christ's sake, for when I'm weak, then I'm strong. And then he goes back to kind of the idea of the whole book where he had been under attack um, by various people in Corinth, and so he was forced here to kind of defend himself, and he didn't want to do it, but he says, you know, look what you've done. I'm doing a stupid thing. I've become a fool in boasting. You've pushed me. You've compelled me to it. I ought to have been commended by you for... In nothing was I behind the most eminent apostles, though I am nothing. See, because Paul was humble, he would admit he was nothing. There were plenty of other people who would come along and say they're something. And so he was forced to, to remind them that we're all the same. We all mess up. Every one of us is, is um, worthless apart from God. And so he said, y- you've made me brag, and it's stupid for me to brag, I'm not less than any of these other guys, but I'm nothing, and they're nothing. We're all nothing. Now, that might seem discouraging to you to have God talking about how, you know, oh, you're nothing. Um, And there are some people who hate to hear about some of the more humble scriptures and even some of the songs, you know, like there's a song that talks about you know, would he devote that sacred head for such a worm as I? And, and I notice that when people do some of these songs, they change the words, even in a song like Amazing Grace, where you hear someone sing it. I heard someone recently, I forget where it was, singing it on television, and, and you know, they said, uh, Amazing Grace, how sweet the sound that saved a man like me, or something like that, because they didn't want to say that saved a wretch like me. Um, I'm not into telling people that they're wretches or worms, but the, the glorious truth is it doesn't matter. And as long as you realize that everyone's a wretch, that's not a big deal. I mean, it's because there are people who act like they aren't, and you go, hey, wait a minute, I'm not going to be a wretch if other people are going to say they aren't. The truth is, We're all pretty insignificant when it comes down to it, but we're greatly significant to the Lord. It's just that if you look at it the way the world sees it, yeah, how big of a dent are we going to leave in this planet during the years that we spend here? Probably not as much as we would like to think, Um, but that's okay because that's, we're all that way. We're all human. We're all made of flesh. We all come short of the glory of God apart from God. But at the same time, he loves us all, and that puts inestimable value on us as well. But it's just important to understand the equality that there exists in humanity, that we're all in the same boat, that none of us has a right to look down at the rest of us. And so... And he goes on to say, hey, you saw the signs of an apostle that were accomplished among you, all perseverance, signs, wonders, mighty deeds, for what is it in which you were inferior to other churches except that I myself was not burdensome to you? Forgive me this wrong. So he says, look, 
you saw God working in my life in your midst. And the only thing that other churches maybe had that you didn't have was they had guys that they were paying, and I was working for you for free. Sorry <laughs> is basically what he's saying. Forgive me this wrong. Now, verse 14. For the third time I am ready to come to you. He had seen them twice before. And I will not be burdensome to you. He said, don't worry. When I come, I'm not going to sponge off of you. I'm not going to, you don't have to go run and hide because, uh uh-oh, here comes Paul. For I do not seek yours, but you. That's such a cool phrase and such a heart of, of a pastor. I don't seek yours. I seek you. And that's the heart of our Lord. That's the heart of Jesus as he came to earth. He wasn't trying to take anything from us. He wanted us. He wanted a relationship with us. And way too often within Christianity, as in every other religion, it seems like the point of religion is generally, how can I get something out of the people? It seems like the most important part of the service is the fundraising, the offering, and, and, you know, what can you give? It just really disgusts me when I've been over um, in places where people are really poor, like we see this in Cambodia, where the people are just living in, literally in a dump, and there are um, religious people who are dressed in their special garb, who in this case they're Buddhist, but you could plug in because there are religious people of all persuasions who do this. But in this case, the Buddhists are walking around holding their bags out trying to get these impoverished people to give them money. Now that's disgusting to me. It's just as disgusting as the people who use Christian television to try to get people to send in their social security checks by faith and see if God will make you richer because of it. The heart of God is never, I want to get something from you. And whenever we give people the idea that, that we want what they have, that we need their provision for us, we're misrepresenting the heart of God. God says, I don't want your stuff. I want you. I want who you are. And God is maybe the only one who really wants you just for you. People can love you and care about you, but still, it's really hard for us to truly have unconditional love. There are times in certain situations where God gives it to us, but let's face it, even the people that we have unconditional love for and the people who we love despite some of their um, ugliness, there's still something redeeming in them that we see. There's a reason why we choose to love certain people more than other people. But it's only God who it says that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us, Romans 5.8. God commendeth or showed his love toward us and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. And I think like Paul saying it here, it's so important that we communicate this to people. I'm not trying to get anything out of you. I'm not trying to hustle you. I'm not trying to take what's yours. I really just want a relationship with you. I want what's best for you. I want you to 
to, to know how much God loves you. I want you to experience his, his unconditional love and acceptance of you. And, and it's beautiful the way Paul put it here. He said, for the children ought not to lay up for the parents, but the parents for the children. He saw them as his kids. And he said, you know, parents want to give to their kids. Kids shouldn't be having to give to parents. And boy, that says a lot about a parent-child relationship. It applies to more than just money. Now, we would think it's really disgusting if a parent is expecting their kids to go out and work and bring the money back to them to support them because a parent's the one who ought to be supporting kids. I'm not saying when the kid's 30, but you know, when, uh, within a reasonable time period, it's the parent's job to equip their kids for the future. You don't have children so that they can support you. Um, but there are some people who their relationship with their children's is one of, children is one of dependence anyway. Maybe it's not about finances, but it's, there are some parents who just dump their problems on their kids. And I've seen the damage that this can do with kids who have to be the parent in the relationship. The, the child has to be the mature one to deal with all of the um, baggage of the parents. And it's not supposed to be that way. The way life ought to be is that we ought to bless our kids and get them going in life as best we can and give them a start and help them to feel not burdened down by our problems, but blessed. And so Paul is saying, I, I look at you as kids and, and I want to be like a good father who doesn't, you know, sap off of their kids, but a father who encourages and gives generously to their, to their kids. I mean, if you have kids and Christmas is coming, I hope that an awful lot of your attention isn't on what the kids are going to get you. I mean, Christmas is like what you want to get for your kids, hopefully. And that, that's just what Paul's kind of <coughs> alluding to here. And he, so he goes on and says, uh, I'll be, I will very gladly spend and be spent for your souls. I care so much about you. I care so much about your eternity. I care so much about your relationship with the Lord that not only will I spend, but I will personally willingly be spent. I'll pour myself out so that you can have that relationship with God that God wants to have with you. I just want what's best for you. He wasn't trying to get them to feel sorry for him. He wasn't playing that guilt role that so often sometimes parents can play, but he's saying, hey, I'm happy to give whatever I have to give even when it means I'm giving my own life for your souls. Really, you know, this is so personal. It's one of the things I really enjoy about this whole book of 2 Corinthians where Paul's really correcting some real errors and yet his, his true heart comes out so loud and clear, the love that he has for them. So often when we are frustrated with someone, that love doesn't come through the way that it does for Paul. He says, though the more abundantly I love you, the less I am loved. That's sad. 
He says, I love you, but it seems like the more I love you, the less that I am loved. And he wasn't saying this to make them feel sorry for him, obviously. He's saying, I'm glad to be spent for you. He's just making this observation. And that sounds kind of crazy, but I've seen this happen a lot of times with people where love is just not reciprocated. One person loves another, and sometimes that causes the other person to take them for granted and really to even love them less. I've seen, I guess I can talk about my grandmother because she's been in heaven for a long time, and I'm pretty sure this isn't what's on the channel up there for them to watch, but my grandmother used to play off one family against another. And so we always thought that she loved my cousins back in Oklahoma more than she loved us because when she was, she was here in California, she would just talk about them as if they're the greatest kids in the world, and, and she would always kind of talk down to us. And it was probably, my grandmother was 100 years old, I think, when I, we first talked with the cousins about it, and they resented us for the same reason. Because when she was in Oklahoma, she talked about us like we were great, and, and she talked to them like they were nothing. And I haven't figured out, uh, you know, how that actually works or why that works. And I'm sure there's some great psychological explanation of it. I've seen it in other relatives I have who will remain nameless because they haven't gone to be with the Lord yet. But sometimes, and, and you've probably seen this when there's someone in your family who's really needy. If you're the one that's always helping them, it seems like they care more about the ones who aren't. There's that expression, absence makes the heart grow fonder. We don't handle love very well. And so quite often, when someone is really passionately demonstrating their love for us, we tend to take that for granted. And we tend to more be drawn to people who aren't. It's, it's sort of like the reason why... Um, often, well, men and women both are drawn to members of the opposite sex who are bad for them. There's something attractive about a dirt bag. And you can't analyze it or evaluate it. You cannot possibly understand why someone who's, who has everything in the world and has this beautiful wife and lovely kids and everything going for them would be drawn to porn stars and cocktail waitresses. And you go, what are you, what are you thinking? And often you, you see young people and you see them attracted to someone who's so bad for them. And almost every time when a marriage breaks up because a person is leaving for someone else, you look at the someone else and go, what in the world were you thinking? I mean, it, you could probably have a choice of a bunch of other people, but, and, and I always kind of enjoy seeing, it, it's, it's, a, it's a gross thing to enjoy, but when you hear that some politician is having this affair or is involved with an intern or whatever, you, you see their picture and you go, you idiot. But 
there's something inside all of us that comes from our sinly flesh that makes us idiots. Satan loves to make fools of us. He loves to destroy us. And so he can cause us to be attracted to people who we know are no good for us. And at the same time, he can cause us to get tired of people who are great for us. He can cause us to look at someone who really loves us and think they're sort of boring or you know, not as exciting. And, and so Paul's seen that. He's going, seems like the more I love you, the less you care about me and the more you look down on me. It's a weird thing of human nature that works that way and it did, did for them too. The more he did, the less they loved him. But he says, verse 16, be that as it may, I didn't burden you. Nevertheless, being crafty, I caught you by cunning. He said, everybody's saying that I conned you and I worked you, so yeah, look how clever I was. Did I take advantage of you by any of those whom I sent to you? He had sent Titus and others. Verse 18, did Titus take advantage of you? Did we not walk in the same spirit? Did we not walk in the same steps? He said, wasn't Titus the same way that I was? Just came and freely ministered to you and gave of himself? Boy, how clever I was. That I never took anything from you and that I sent people to you and they didn't take anything from you either. Again, verse 19, do you think that we excuse ourselves to you? We speak before God in Christ, but we do all things, beloved, for your edification. He said, all I want to do is build you up. Everything that I've done and everything that I'm telling you is for the purpose of helping you to have better lives, encouraging you and lifting you up. That's, that's my only agenda with you. And boy, would to God that we could say that about the people who are in our lives, to say, all I want for you is what's best. All I want is to help you along the way. All I want is to build you up. Verse 20, for I fear lest when I come I shall not find you such as I wish and that I shall be found by you such as you do not wish. He said, I'm nervous about coming because I'm afraid you're not going to be the way I want you to be and I'm afraid then I'm not going to be the way that you would want me to be. In other words, I don't want to come and fight with you. Lest there be contentions, jealousies, outbursts of wrath, selfish ambitions, backbitings, whisperings, conceits, tumults. He goes, I don't want to come and fight with you. I don't want there to be all this drama. I don't want there to be all this um, difficulty. Lest when I come again, my God will humble me among you, and I shall mourn for many who have sinned before and have not repented, of the uncleanness, fornication, and lewdness which they have practiced. This is interesting because (coughs) Paul has this authority as an apostle that he could really wield on them. But notice that what's he threatening them with? Is he saying, man, when I get there, I'm going to straighten everybody out. I'm going to grab you by the nap of the neck. I'm going to throw you around, I'm going to put you in your place, I'm going to really chew you out. That's kind of the way we would do it. 
look, when I get there, I'm going to really show you a thing or two. See what Paul says? If I come there and you're a mess, it's going to humble me and I'm going to cry. And I'm going I'm to feel stupid as I'm crying in your presence over your condition because your sins haven't been repented of. That's amazing to me. For a guy who was so good with his words, for a guy who could have certainly, because of his miracles, I mean, he could have done a lot. Don't you wish you had water? (laughs) I mean, Paul could have come and rallied support for himself, but instead he says, I'm coming, and I'm going to show the power of my apostleship by crying if things aren't right. What a strange threat. You know, what a... What an interesting prediction. But remember, this is the Paul who learned that when he's weak, that's when God can be the strongest. And so Paul didn't feel like he had to man up and and act tough. He didn't feel like he... (laughs) Ed has his man-up shirt on back there, so... See, Paul was nothing like Ed. No, but, but, you know, he was just saying, you know what? When I get there, if things aren't right, it's going to break my heart, and I'm going to cry. And we have culturally, and because of our own pride, I think sometimes we have um, caused the idea that weakness and crying is something that has no part in someone who's really strong or who's, especially for men, men grow up with a thing of, you know, quit being a baby, stop crying, don't cry. And men think that if they cry, it's, it's a sign of some kind of weakness. And I suppose it is um, to a degree, but it's a weakness that Paul wasn't afraid of because he knew about God's strength. There have been times when, you know, I was with someone and all I could do was cry it feels really stupid. I mean, I don't, I don't ever work up tears, not like an actor, and go, oh man, that third point was so powerful because I cried really on cue, and it, you know, little onions on my, you know. But sometimes I cry in front of people, and I don't ever appreciate it or like it, or you know, I don't think of those as being my finer moments. But it's funny because almost whenever I do, there are people who will say, I really appreciate that you care enough that you would cry. There's something wrong with people who don't cry, with people who don't even care that deeply about things that matter. And Paul was not ashamed to say, when I get there, I'm probably going to fall apart if I find out that you guys are still messing up your lives. I'm not going to be mad at you. See, God's heart is broken when people are destroying themselves. You know, remember, that's one of the reasons why Moses didn't get to go into the promised land. Because the children of Israel were messing up, and Moses got mad at them. God told him to speak to the rock, and water would come out. 
But Moses was so mad at the people, he said, worse, God and I are sick of you. And he struck the rock twice with the stick. And water came out because people needed water. But God said, Moses, you misrepresented me really bad. You gave people the impression that I'm upset. And my heart's broken for what the people are doing to themselves. But I'm not angry with them. Anytime we give people, we need to be really careful when we give people the idea that, boy, God's really mad at you. More often than not, when we think God's mad at people, he's probably weeping over them, as Jesus did as he stood over Jerusalem and said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who killed the prophets, how I longed to gather you as a hen gathers her chicks, but you would not. And, and that's the heart of God, and, and that's Paul's heart for these people too. They were a mess, and y- you could justify him if he just got angry with them and chewed them out, but instead he threatens to come and cry. I like that. Chapter 13, this will be the third time I am coming to you. By the mouth of two or three witnesses, every word shall be established. That was a part of the um, Levitical law, For the death penalty, you needed to have two or three solid witnesses. And so he's quoting this and basically saying, I'm coming to you again to tell you the same stuff I've told you before. Because even in a court of law, it's required that there be witnesses. And so I'm going to witness to you. I've told you before and foretell as if I were present the second time And now being absent, I write to those who have sinned before and to all the rest that if I come again, I will not spare. I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to say what I have to say. Verse 3, since you seek a proof of Christ speaking in me, who is not weak towards you, but mighty in you. For though he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by the power of God. For we also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. He said, I'm going to come and show you the proof of Christ speaking in me. And you'd think that means I'll show you my power. But he said, and, and Paul has made this clear in a bunch of passages, Christ showed his power when he died for us. And that was all validated because he rose from the dead. But he said, I'm going to come and tell you the same story I've told you before. The fact that Jesus Christ laid his life down for you. And he said, I'm laying my life down for you to make that point. And whether you like it or not, God's power is going to be seen more in my willingness to give of myself than it would be if I came and chewed you out and crushed you. He said, I'm suffering. You're looking down your nose at that, almost as if, hey, man, if Paul was really of God, then he wouldn't be getting stoned, he wouldn't be imprisoned, he wouldn't be treated this way. He's a loser. And so many of the people there in Corinth, because they had such a great concept of competitiveness, And they had right there in Corinth the Isthmus Games, which were a a sister contest to the Olympic Games. And 
they were very competitive. And so they looked on Paul, a guy who was kind of short and ugly, picked on a lot, and they, they just thought of him as a loser. And he said, no, you can see what's happening in my life. The same power that sent Jesus to the cross is the same power that is happening in my life right now. And remember, he was raised from the dead. We also are weak in him, but we shall live with him by the power of God toward you. That power of God comes through sacrifice. And then he says, examine yourselves as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. But I trust that you will know that we are not disqualified. That's a heavy verse, verse 5 there. Something we should take seriously. Examine yourself. Don't just assume that you are in the faith. Don't just say, yeah, I'm a Christian because I remember praying a prayer. I'm a Christian because, you know, I was raised in America. I'm a Christian because I go to church. I'm a Christian because I'm a better person than most people. It's not what he's talking about. In the context, the idea is the strength of your faith is demonstrating demonstrated by what you are willing to endure. And so he says, take a look in the mirror. Are you willing to pay a price? Are you willing to be treated poorly for your faith? Have you identified with Jesus Christ in this way? So many people want to be in the faith, want to be believers in Christ, and yet they don't want to be put out of their comfort in the least bit. They aren't willing to deny their flesh. <coughs> They're not willing to make sacrifices that might be necessary, even in the simplest way. And Paul says, it's possible for you to be disqualified. And you need to look at yourself and take a good hard look and see if you really are in the faith. See if what you have is a genuine relationship with God. Now, I don't think this verse necessarily teaches that you could be in the faith and then fall away from the faith and be disqualified. Um, but it doesn't really matter. You know, people have great debates on whether or not you can lose your salvation or not. Um, and, I, and I've always felt that no matter which side of the argument I was on, and I do go back and forth on it somewhat, sorry, but it all comes down to semantics, really. Because what matters is, are you a believer when it comes time to face Jesus Christ? Now, if you are a Christian and you're just always going to be a Christian, you should still be able to look at your life and see evidence that you're a Christian. Now, if you were a Christian and then you lost your salvation, as um, Arminians teach, and I don't know if that's a possibility or not, but if you, if you lost your salvation, what was it that you actually had? And how much good did it actually do you if Christianity is having eternal life and 
your eternal life ran out, it's kind of like saying, yeah, I had a lifetime warranty, but it expired. (laughs) It doesn't matter. Our question shouldn't be, oh, have I lost my salvation? Or, oh, I feel so good about the fact that I know I got in, I got my... I signed my name on the dotted line. I prayed the little prayer, and now I'm saved, and I don't have to worry about it anymore. I don't think Paul would say that. He he would say, better be checking out your life and making sure that you really do have a genuine faith, a real, genuine relationship with Jesus Christ. Because a lot of people are depending on a lot of things that will not get you to heaven. You cannot come to the door of heaven and explain that, man, do you know how long I went to church? No, it's, that's not going to cut it. Um, I prayed a prayer. I even walked forward five times. Jesus is going to say to some people who were even doing miracles in his name, I never knew you. Now, he didn't say, I used to know you, but I don't anymore. But what I get from that, and my strong inclination is that there are a lot of people who think they're fine with God and they really aren't. There are a lot of people who believe that they're Christians and maybe they're not. And so, I, you know, I don't like saying that and I, because I know that Satan's going to come and tell some of you who are definitely Christians, maybe you're not. You're going to lay it in bed tonight worrying about this, and you shouldn't. Um, Chances are, if you're afraid you're not saved, you're almost certainly saved. But if you think, if you're very cocky and you're sure you're saved and you're not really walking with the Lord, I worry about you. You're the one I'm concerned about. But for every one of us, and Paul does it himself, he looks at his life and he sees if there's evidence that He has a real walk with the Lord. What would that evidence be? Here in the context, it's about suffering. What are you willing to put up with to walk with God? Do you live your life by taking the path of least resistance? Or do you go through difficult times? It's not that you look for difficult times. You don't have to. They're going to come. But so many times in life, you'll go through a difficulty and there's an easy way out of that that's a compromise. There's an easy way out of it, but it's not the way that God wants you to take. And so he says, look at what you're willing to put up with. I mean, it's sometimes as simple as denying yourself certain simple pleasures that might bring you temporary relief, and yet you know that God doesn't want you to do them. He's He's told you to stay away from that kind of behavior. And, and so, and, and we can look at our lives and say, are we willing to, to suffer? But even beyond that, Paul talks about the fruit of the Spirit as being love, joy, peace, long-suffering, gentleness, goodness, faith, meekness, self-control, So I can look at my life. How am I doing loving people? How about joy? Is that showing up a lot? How about peace? How about long-suffering? Am I willing 
to suffer. And that's what Paul's talking about here. Gentleness? Am I learning to treat people carefully and not, not just like a blunderbust? Not, not clumsily, but I'm willing to be gentle? Good, do I really want to do the right thing? Faith, do I believe even when I don't see? Meekness, am I willing to let somebody else be right and me be wrong? And self-control is my life, a life of discipline. Now, we're all going to be nailed if we're looking to be perfect in all of those areas. But a good way to look at it is, how are you doing in those areas? Are you growing? Not are you the perfect example of love, but are you more loving now than you used to be? Are you more patient now than you used to be? Because your life will tend to go one direction or the other. And it's like I've said before, old people are interesting because the older they get, it seems like they either get sweeter and more understanding and more wise or they get meaner and more ornery and more bitter and angry. And when you can look, stand back and look at a life, you can see that happening. And Paul's just saying, take a look. How are you doing? Make sure that you really have a relationship with the Lord. This is important. He said, I hope you know that we're not disqualified. I hope you have seen this kind of stuff in, in my life and in my heart. Verse 7, he says, Now I pray to God that you do no evil, not that we should appear approved, but that you should do what is honorable, though we may seem disqualified. He said, I want you to quit messing up, not because I'm embarrassed by what you're doing, but I'm concerned for you. If you continue to walk in sin, if you continue to do things that are destructive and self-destructive, sure, that embarrasses me. But I want you to do what's honorable even if I look stupid in the process. I don't, you know, and, and, and this should be our attitude with our kids. This should be our attitude with our friends and neighbors and everyone else that we see. It should be, I want what's best for you because I want you to be blessed. I don't want you to treat yourself like a piece of trash so that other people will think you're a piece of trash. I want you to believe better things about yourself and to live your life on a higher plane because sometimes you don't have the sense to be embarrassed. There are some sometimes Christian marriages that they ought to just be ashamed the way that they treat each other. And Paul would say to them, I don't want you guys doing that, not because it hurts me. And like I wouldn't want to go, oh man, I don't want you guys out there yelling at each other and being mean to each other and then have people find out you go to my church because that's going to make me look really bad. Paul would go, I don't care about me. I don't care what people think of me, but I want you to live a life that's glorifying to God, that's satisfying to you, that's honorable, that where people can look up to you. And I, and I hope that I don't ever encourage people to live a better life because somehow it's going to be a notch in my belt. 
I just know if you follow Jesus Christ and walk with him, it's going to make your life so much better. And that's, that's God's heart for you as well. But we can do nothing against the truth but for the truth. I'm just shooting straight with you. For we are glad when we are weak and you are strong. He said, I'm fine if I'm weak and you're strong. I want you to do well. And this also we pray that you may be made complete. I just want you to mature, to be the complete package. Therefore, I write these things being absent, lest being present I should use sharpness according to the authority which the Lord has given me for edification and not for destruction. What a great picture of spiritual authority. He said, man, if I talk to you in person, you might pick up the look on my face. You might pick up how passionate I am about this, and you might even read from this that I'm mad at you and I'm taking this personally. But he said, God gave me authority for the purpose of edification. The reason I have what I have, the reason I do what I do, is to try to build you up. But I know myself. And if I come in person and you guys are messed up, I might, I might be hard on you. And I really don't want to do that. So how about you cooperate and get right with God and repent so that you don't bring that out in me I want to use my authority the way that God has called me to use it. Not as picking on you and beating you over the head, but I want to use my authority in a way that will edify you. And so again, you see, Paul had every reason and every right to come down hard on them, but he doesn't. And if Paul doesn't do it to a church like Corinth, I try, to, I try to remember this when I preach. I don't always do well, and boy, there are times when I talk to someone personally, and I do what Paul was afraid that he would do, and I come off too strong. I'm, I'm a pretty passionate person, and so there are times that I'll readily confess to you that I get worked up and I believe in something and I'll state something really strongly and I'll state it in a way that is stronger than I should have, stronger than the way that God would have. But I try to remember as I teach that I certainly don't have the authority that Paul had. And Paul was saying, what I want to do is to build you up. I want to edify you. And, and that should be all of our desires whenever we minister to others, is that it's always about edification, that it's never about destruction. Oh, I'm tempted sometimes, as Paul was, but that's not what he needs from us. God has the whole destruction thing down. And when the time comes for judgment to be given out, God has given all of his judgment over into the hand of Jesus Christ. And believe me, sin will be judged. But it's not for us to judge it. It's not for us to anger ourselves over it. We're here to build people up and encourage them, not to tear them down. Finally, brethren, farewell. Become complete. Become mature. Move in the direction of growing. Be of good comfort. 
be of one mind, live in peace. And the God of love and peace will be with you. How are we to be of good comfort? The only way I know of where we can really be of good comfort is if we comfort each other. Um, It's hard to comfort yourself. We try. But usually the way we try to comfort ourselves is by doing something destructive, like eating comfort food. I mean, I admit, when I'm feeling really depressed, you know, definitely ice cream improves the situation. Um, and and a good macaroni and cheese that's just oozing with cheese and fat and carbohydrates. Oh, man, is that comforting. But then there's this after effect that kicks in where you go, why did I comfort myself like that? And I'm, and I'm almost always sorry that I did it. Once in a while, you go, that was good, and I'm, gonna, and I'm willing to pay the price, whatever the price is. But generally, when we try to comfort ourselves, it doesn't go very well. But boy, how easy it is to be comforted by someone else. I'm amazed at how much better I can feel when someone says something comforting to me. I'm, amazing, I'm amazed what a difference it can make when I offer some comfort to someone else. Comfort is intended as a team sport. Now, it's not that you can't do it by yourself, but it works best as a team. And, and so Paul's telling the whole body collectively, you guys, be of good comfort. Be of one mind. Agree together. Find out. You know, you know, you can never be of one mind if you have to agree on everything in order to be of one mind because you'll never find anyone who agrees with you on everything. But to be of one mind means get together with people and focus on what you agree on. Find out what you have in common. Find out what it is that you can unite on. Often that is a great cause of ministering to others. And, and, and there's no time when the body of Christ comes together better than in a time when we're serving others who are in great need. And then hopefully we can put our own issues out of our minds and, and we serve God. And, and then we realize, wow, it's, there's such a unity. But in order to have unity, we have to agree to put a lot of things aside that might be differences so that we can draw together, provide comfort to each other, and live in peace. You know, you're supposed to live in peace, love and peace. That's the way it's supposed to work. When, when we aren't experiencing love and peace, something's wrong. We're doing, we're doing it wrong. We're not living life the way God designed it to be lived. And the God of love and peace will be with you Since he is the God of love and peace, when we aren't willing to pay the price for love and peace, it's no wonder it seems like God's a long ways away. But if we're drawing close to God, he has a way of taking his love and peace and making them a part of our lives as well. Greet one another with a holy kiss. That was a traditional way they would greet. We would tend to more give each other a hug or a handshake or 
high five, too, down low, too slow, and whatever. All the saints greet you. Everybody who's with him says to say hi. That's pretty good that he could just do it that way. He didn't want to name names. It's like everybody said hi. And then this beautiful last verse, the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the communion of the Holy Spirit be with you all, amen. Grace, love, communion, tied in with the Trinity, the Son, the Father, the Holy Spirit. All together, what a total and complete package. What a blessing it is that God is for us, that he's with us, that he loves us, and he's willing to meet us where we are to take him where he wants us to be. If we can just kind of stay out of his way, God can do amazing things. He can complete the work that he started. And that's what Paul desired for these Christians there in Corinth and wrote this letter to that effect. I've enjoyed going through it with you. Next week, we're going to pick up in a study in the book of Colossians, another one of my favorite books, just an amazing book. So hope you'll come back with us. Let's pray. Lord, thanks for your word. Thank you for this guy, Paul. What a guy. <coughs> he loved people who really didn't deserve it to remind us that you loved us when we totally didn't deserve it. Lord, please help us to follow that example. Help us to be able to care about people who sometimes don't care about us. But help us to learn to work together for, for the purpose of comfort and edification, building up love and peace. This life is not supposed to be lived solo. So help us to risk by reaching out to others and forming these kinds of costly relationships that we could be an example to others of what you do in people's lives. So Lord, we thank you for this book. We thank you for your word. We thank you for giving us a place and giving us each other so that we could gather together around your word. Bless the rest of this week, all of the activities that are coming up, our, our uh, Christmas potluck on Saturday. Lord, I just pray that this will all be times when we can freely appreciate and enjoy you and each other. Thank you. In Jesus' name, amen. Remember,